to this phrase that you brought up because it was a way of, I think, sort of signaling that Islam is not a religion that will be sort of represented as one that Trump wants <laughs> offering a benediction officially as he has sort of every other religion up there on stage with him during his inauguration, but rather is sort of associated with an extremist ideology or a geopolitical worldview. That's Emma Green, a staff writer at The Atlantic who covers the intersection of politics, policy, and religion. Today we hear from Emma about the role of religion in American politics and American life. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. This week's guest, Emma Green, has worked in various capacities as both a writer and editor at The Atlantic since 2012. In that time, a good deal of her work has focused on the relationship between politics and religion. The particular topics she's examined are various and wide-ranging. Recently, she's written on the tenuous place of pro-life Christian Democrats and contemporary feminism, as well as on cafeteria Catholicism in American politics, and on important questions about religious freedom and LGBT rights. In March 2016, she announced the launch of a project on the changing nature of religious beliefs and practices among teens, as well as 20 and 30-somethings. Indeed, Green writes compellingly about religious belief and American politics as they interact today. She also writes in a way that I think could help us consider what that interaction could look like in the coming years. In this episode, I ask Emma about her work on religion and politics, as well as about the election of Donald Trump and its potential effects on religious relations in this country. We recorded our conversation a little over a week ago before President Trump made his executive order on immigration. However, Emma's remarks provide some context for that decision and its effects and offer us much to think about. That and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Emma Green, uh, thanks so much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. So first, I have just a couple questions about President Trump's um, inauguration for you, uh, particularly with respect to some religious themes. Uh, At one point in his speech, I can't remember exactly where, Trump committed to eradicating, that was his word, quote, radical Islamic terrorism from the face of the earth. That was the general phrase he used. Uh, what, What did you think about his use of that phrase? So obviously it was significant in part because some politicians on the right had been challenging President Obama to use it when he was in office. But now that Trump has said it as president, what do you think the ramifications will be for religious relations in this country as well as for Islamic citizens generally? Well, this is certainly an echo of the kind of rhetoric that President Trump used when he was still running for president. And I think it was easily predictable that he would continue to use that kind of rhetoric after his election. Uh, And it was, I think, noteworthy, as you said, that during the inauguration, this is a phrase that he chose to bring out. And I thought it was particularly noteworthy that he had during his inauguration, in contrast to his immediate predecessors, six different religious clergy who represented largely evangelical traditions, but, you know, were sort of like a one of every kind, right? He had a Catholic cardinal, he had a rabbi, and he had four different evangelicals, but he had a a black evangelical, a female evangelical, a Hispanic evangelical, and a white evangelical. So, you know, it was a one of every kind approach, but 
conspicuously, there was no Muslim leader. There was mm-hmm. no imam. And that's not something that previous presidents have done either. So that's not to sort of hold President Trump to an unfair standard. But I thought it was interesting, again, coming back to this phrase that you brought up, because it was a way of, I think, sort of signaling that Islam is not a religion that will be sort of represented as uh, one that Trump wants <laughs> offering a benediction officially as he has sort of every other religion up there on stage with him during his inauguration, but rather is sort of associated with an extremist ideology or a geopolitical worldview. Um, I also think it, it's pretty remarkable in contrast to previous presidents. Obama in particular sort of issued this phrase, but um, George W. Bush had a wonderful way, especially after 9-11, of reaching out, making sure that he was reaching out to Muslim communities when there was this expectation of backlash um, after 9-11. And I think Trump has not so far shown that same kind of balance, uh, the ability to sort of reach out while he is calling Mm -hmm. out um, terrorism. So, I I mean, I think people are scared. I think a lot of reporting has borne that out. I think there's a lot of nervousness about what kinds of policies will come related to that rhetoric. Um, But tonally, I certainly think that that kind of rhetoric has contributed to an atmosphere of fear during these first days of the Trump presidency. So I'm I'm glad you bring up the fact that there were, as you say, I think like five Christian leaders at the inauguration, plus one Jewish uh, leader, a, a rabbi. I, a lot of commentators have made something of that, as you say, even though in the in in a general sense that's actually been traditional for inaugurations. But I think what what might be most perplexing to many commentators is why so many religious people, more specifically, so many Christians and evangelicals voted for Trump, uh, who himself only just recently started to make explicitly religious references in his speeches. So an interesting article you recently published uh, called Democrats Have a Religion Problem, I think gets at an important part of this issue. So one of the suggestions of that article seems to be that many Christians, particularly theologically conservative ones, might have embraced Trump simply because the Democrats have really been kind of bad at reaching out to them. So could you talk about that? Yeah, so that was an interesting interview with a guy named Michael Weir, who was part of Obama's White House working in the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives. And he is an evangelical uh, and also you know, openly identifies as a Democrat, has worked as a Democratic strategist, uh, and was sort of citing some of his experiences within the Democratic Party, a sense that he's gotten through his experiences of uh, general illiteracy, sometimes outright hostility, and a lack of big tent, a willingness to create a big tent on certain issues, particularly social issues. Um, And that, you know, would include abortion and same-sex marriage. Mm. But I think there are others that he would include there. Um, I think there's complexity in trying to combine the two thoughts, which is the challenges that the Democratic Party has faced or made for itself in reaching out to religious Americans of all kinds, not just conservative Christians or evangelical Christians, Um, you know, Catholics, minority groups of all kinds, you know, Muslims didn't break explicitly for Democrats in previous elections. That was sort of a new thing this year. Um, so, you know, Democrats, I would say, arguably have quote, quote, religious problems in a lot of different aspects. And you could sort of cite different instances that provide evidence of this, mm-hmm. but sort of flipping back over to the other side of your question, which is why, 
evangelical Christians in particular, and specifically white evangelical Christians, voted in large numbers for Donald Trump. Um, I think some of it is probably alienation from the Democratic Party generally in a cultural sense. I think some of it is feeling that they had one issue that they wanted to make sure was taken care of, which was abortion, and that would be mostly safeguarded through not just presidential and congressional actions, but through the Supreme Court, so an appointment of a pro-life Supreme Court justice. Um, And then I think there were some evangelical Christians who felt very mixed, who maybe felt that Trump represents their political beliefs, and they were very uh, enthusiastic to vote for him. I think there were some Mm -hmm. evangelical Christians who didn't really like Trump, didn't like their options. Uh, and felt that in the end they wanted to vote for one of the two major party candidates, but they were sort of picking the lesser of two evils. Um, I think evangelicals, while we refer to them as a monolith, in fact, that term encompasses an enormous amount of diversity, both in terms of political ideology, you know, geography, even denominational affiliation, and sort of theological tradition. So it's hard to generalize, I think, why people's reasons are for mm-hmm. voting for Trump or doing anything in particular. But um, I think those are, are probably among the chief reasons, or at least some for some people in that group who did vote by and large uh, for Donald Trump. Yeah, so you've written uh, really compellingly about, um, I th- you just recently published an article about I think, pro-life Democrats or um, uh, uh, women who marched in the recent Women's March um, uh but who um, take a pro-life position. And this seems to be a really interesting kind of fault line on the left uh, for a lot of religious people, which is the question of, of, of abortion. A lot, a, lot of, um, a lot of people who would be Democrats or who would vote Democratic, but who are religious, say, particularly Catholic, um, have that one uh, position that they perhaps would hold strongly enough that to prevent them from voting Democratic. How significant do you think that issue in particular will be in the coming years for a lot of religious people, say, among Catholics, for instance, um, uh, who would probably vote Democrat but may not based on that particular issue? So I think one important thing to note in dissecting that uh, answer, which I I will say that speculating into the future is always a dangerous game. Sure. If there's one thing that the 2016 election taught me, it's Mm. that speculation is a fool's errand. But um, trying to sort of break it down a little bit. um, One interesting thing about abortion is that public opinion, by and large, has not changed radically since Roe versus Wade, since 1973. And this is very interesting because the rates of abortion have actually changed quite significantly. Uh, Generational turnover has happened, right? There are now young women who are in their adult lives who have never been adults in an era when abortion was illegal. Right. Um, but in fact, public opinion on abortion pretty much stays steady. And, you know, there's a significant portion of the populace who believe abortion is wrong in all circumstances. There are a significant portion that believes that it's, you know, sort of morally mixed, right? It's something that's not preferable, but should be legal in certain circumstances. And then the flip is true. People believe moral in all circumstances. People who believe it should mostly be legal with some sort of edge cases being illegal. Um, So all of that is to say that I think if past trends predict the future well, which we have no reason to think they won't, I think we'll continue to be divided as a country on this. Um, And I think there are sort of two interesting things that I will be watching or questions that I will be asking. 
Um, the first is that I, I think party lines on the issue of abortion are largely non-representative of the populace writ large. So pro-life Democrats in general, and then I'm talking about pro-life Democratic citizens or citizens who would identify as Democrats, right. are largely not represented by pro-life senators or pro-life congresspeople. If they vote for Democrats and are in a district where you know, the district is represented by a Democrat, um, because there are very, very few pro-life Democrats who are in national Congress or who vote in pro-life ways on congressional measures. Um, and, you know, on the, at the same time, I, I think the Republican Party probably doesn't reflect uh, in for some of its constituents, some of the ambiguity they might feel about uh, abortion, whether that's wanting to be fully pro-choice or at least have a little bit more wiggle room on the restrictions around abortion. Um, so the, the way that the parties reflect the populace and whether that will change or continue to be sort of polarized is one question I'm interested in. And then the other, which is something that you pointed out, is that there are you know, probably a number of people who are sort of in that middle space who would break for the Democratic Party if not for the hardline position mm -hmm. in support of abortion. Um, I think this is going to become even more relevant with younger generations of highly religious Catholics and highly religious Christians, um, and particularly evangelical Christians. Um, I think there's a really interesting remapping going along uh, in sort of younger generations of, of religious Americans who care a lot about racial reconciliation, who care a lot about global issues like human trafficking, who are really enthusiastic about the environment, who are maybe interested in climate change or climate science, um, who have sort of an intellectual investment in some of these issues that are typically associated with the progressive or democratic left, uh, but who feel also strongly about abortion as an issue. That's right. um, something that's really important to them. So I, I think this is going to be really interesting watching the millennial generation grow up and see for religious millennials what happens to them in terms of their party affiliation and, and what kinds of representation they end up with um, as they sort of move into the spotlight even more as adult Americans. So I'm really glad you bring up the, the topic of what kind of questions uh, you're uh, interested in asking as, as we move forward. So um, for listeners, you cover uh, politics as well as religion at The Atlantic, and often your articles focus on the intersection of those two things. So anyone who follows your work could probably tell that you have a bit of latitude to ask new and compelling questions about this intersection. So you recently wrote an article, as I said, about pro-life Democrats and feminists that we were just talking about, but also one I, I noticed recently about Martin Scorsese's film Silence, and um, <laughs> which was, I, I love that article, and then a number of pieces about the changing nature, as you were just describing, of religious beliefs and practices among young people. So could you describe, in addition to what you just said, sort of what sorts of questions you're most interested in asking about religion and politics, and, and more generally, what questions did you start asking when you first kind of assumed the religion beat at the Atlantic and, and how have your interests developed since then? Wow. Well, that second question is really hard because that would be like trying to take my entire brain and downloading it <laughs> sure, and yeah. mapping the ways in which the, the stew that is my mind, right. right? Like all of the fuzzy and totally in this non-distinct questions that are floating around, like, have evolved over time. Well, I guess maybe um, thematically then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll take it this way. So I have been thinking a lot since the election 
in particular about questions. And I think having good questions is the key for any reporter. Um, it's, I think, so crucial for people who are interested in sort of engaging in, in public life um, and public discussions because it's how you get to interesting people and ideas and, and how you detect patterns is asking the right questions. And it's really hard asking the right questions. It's really, really, really hard. And I don't think it's ever a practice that anyone gets perfect at. I mm -hmm. certainly am not. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about what are the right questions since the election in particular. And I think there's been recurrent themes in my work over time. So I, you know, cover religion in the proper sense, covering it like city hall, right? What did the Vatican do? What is the United Methodist Church doing? But I also cover religion adjacent questions. What are sort of the big moral and ethical questions that people struggle with in their daily lives? What are the issues that tend to involve religious belief or be interested or the religious people tend to be interested in, um, and that's, you know, social issues, but it's also economic issues, legal issues with religious freedom. Um, these have all been themes in my writing. I think they're probably going to continue, but I think right now there is a big evolution happening in what kinds of questions journalists need to be asking and on the religion beat and religion and politics beat just as any other. I think that's true. I think uh, watching the changing legal norms, whether through court decisions or congressional action around religious freedom, questions that tend to be of interest to uh, religious folks, conservative religious folks, but also, you know, religious minority groups. Um, I think watching the nature of discrimination and whether religious discrimination against minority groups uh, does come to pass in a way that a lot of progressive groups have been presaging. Um, I think in a more general sense, alienation is a huge question right now. And I've been trying to get at this in a number of different ways, but I think, you know, it's one of those huge sort of concept bubbles that requires a lot of different passes. But the sense that people feel really alienated from their politics and uh, really distant from the tools that they have to actually make change in their communities. Uh, and I think that's huge and really interesting. And it's not necessarily mm. an explicitly religious question, although I think it has religious notes. Um, but trying to sort of understand that and map it and, and see what that means for our policy, which is going through a pretty major shock right now, not just shock in the sense of, you know, everyone is shocked and appalled by Donald Trump, because I don't think that's true. I think right. there's some people who are quite positive about his uh, presidency. It's more that it's a, a realignment that's happening, right? So it's shock in the sense that everything is being sort of shaken uh, and switched around right now. And so watching watching how that shakes out and what the consequences are, I think is a huge uh, storyline and will yield a lot of good questions. So let's, can we talk just for a second about um, about this question of alienation? I think it's really important. So an article, another article you recently published uh, is called uh, Seeking an Escape. Uh, from Trump's America, in which you describe how some religious people, so in this case, uh, Christian anarchists were, I think, your main subject, but how, how some religious people were becoming uh, so tired of or perhaps kind of disillusioned by the American mainstream that they would potentially decide to form intentional communities in uh, an almost Amish fashion. Uh, so one line about these various religious groups you write, I think is, is compelling and kind of gets to the, to the heart of the matter. Uh, quote, their answers are different, but they share one thing. They've seen what modern American life looks like and they want out. So why would, I guess in your view generally, why would some religious communities, particularly minority communities, want to opt out of mainstream American life? Yeah, 
Well, I, I think there are a lot of different reasons, right? I mean, I think you could go to either side of what is falsely portrayed as a binary political spectrum mm-hmm. and find people who are frustrated with what goes on in mainstream life. And this is not just mainstream politics, although I think that's a big part of it. I mean, people hate Congress. They give extraordinarily low approval ratings to the president. Um, They believe that institutions of sort of tracking political life, like the media, are corrupt and don't trust them. Um, So there's that kind of alienation that I think happens on all sides of whatever political spectrum you might want to construct. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think there are different groups that have had different reasons. So the people I was speaking with who were not all religious, I, there was one set that was a Christian anarchist set, but there were others who were quite secular who shared a common interest in environmentalism and a distaste for reliance on fossil fuels. And that was really interesting because in my view, it was a way of saying our dependencies, the systems and structures that we're all integrated into are flawed. They're morally bankrupt and we need to radically overhaul our lives in order to not be participating in that bankrupt system. The only way to do that is to really kind of step outside of the system and create a new, a new way of living and a new life. But there are other, <clears throat> other dimensions to this. Um, Roger, who's at the American conservative right. is sort of an Orthodox thinker, has a new book, the Benedict option that, sort of draws on writing he's been doing for a while, which suggests that there could be a model for Christians who are interested in uh, a sort of conservative Christian life that has sort of robust mores and norms modeled around sort of central values and theological convictions. They can sort of model their own communities, right? And this should be a goal and a good. Um, and, and I think that's going to be really interesting um, to see whether that happens. I don't think we're going to see mass exodus. I think uh, inertia is a hugely powerful force. And I think using an iPhone, right, or driving a car or, you know, being sort of vaguely ambiently aware of what's going on on Mm -hmm. CNN, right? Like these are things that are just centrifugally present in our lives and we're just sort of pulled into them over and over again. And it's very, very difficult to exit that in some sort of robust way. Um, so it's not that I expect to see, you know, sort of people fleeing en masse into the hills right. to start their own commune, right? Um, but the ideas that are embedded in the projects that people who have fled or who are trying to create an alternative, not all of them are fleeing, some of them are creating sort of alternative models. Those are really interesting ideas. And I think they're relevant to everybody because if you're frustrated and you're trying to figure out a way to live and you have a lot of parts of modern life that you don't like, um, I think it can be can be difficult to see what paths there are available to you. So it's interesting you bring up um, Rod Dreher's writing. So I, one thing I've been I've been generally wondering, especially about the sort of prominence of in, in some circles, the prominence of a return of kind of orthodoxy, especially in Christian and Catholic circles. It's it seems like the the urge to want to go off and sort of form a community might stem sure from political discontent and discontent with the way American politics have been headed for the past, say, 10 years or 20 years. It also might more generally be, and I'm just wondering your position on this, a, generally be a result of of secularization and, say, you know, the prominence of the kind of bowling alone thesis that, you know, like without certain form of, of older religious or social solidarities, people are feeling more atomized 
more deeply alone um, as citizens. And it seems like the the rise of, of, of interest in sort of forming intentional communities would be to reinstate a kind of deep social and cultural or religious bond. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you been thinking about this as well with respect to um, uh, 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 longing to, to, to form new social bonds and communities? I, cer- I certainly think that's part of it. And I think I would sort of flip the question around, which mm. is to say understanding the alienation has to partly be understood as a story of the unwinding of our traditional institutions. Right. Um, I think there's an interesting sort of tension in the application of the, as you called it, bullet alone thesis to <laughs> these sort of trends of people rebuilding their own robust communities or, you know, building the type of uh, sort of alter world that uh, Dreyer may imagine, um, which I also don't want to put words into his mouth. Right. Um, he can speak much more eloquently on his work than I can, but um, there's this there's this sort of interesting uh, disconnect there because I do think it's interesting and important to identify the negative side effects that appear to be connected to the unwinding of these institutions, which have formerly been sort of like a connective tissue for different communities and for sort of national character, which is religious institutions, but it's also labor unions, it's also you know, uh, the Elks and the Moose Club, right? And all of these different kinds of civic associations. Um, the, the unwinding of these institutions has negative side effects and that's what Robert Putnam identified. But it's also a very utilitarian way of thinking about those institutions. So it's the idea that these institutions are only useful or good insofar as they keep us from being lonely, right? Mm-hmm. Or they, mm-hmm. you know, in some cases create better heart health or, you know, help people to not die as young, which I think there's a lot of different studies about the way that uh, institutional affiliation and community connection helps people even with like their physical health. Um, it's, it's like this utility minded way of thinking about this institution. But in fact, that's not why they exist. They exist to serve a multiplicity of purposes in people's lives, but ultimately are, you know, connected to these deeply held beliefs that people have about the way the universe works, right? Who they are, how salvation works, um, how morality works, all of these different things that sort of go into specifically religious institutions that go into the sort of makeup of those institutions. So I, I do think that it's interesting to try to reverse engineer the question and say, in what ways can we recover the goods that are offered by these institutions? And I think the water's edge is probably in what way, <laughs> you can't ask the question very effectively, in what way can we socially engineer society to make people participate in institutions that mm-hmm. are good for them? Because I think it sort of overlooks the reason those institutions were created in the first place. That's very interesting. So I have to imagine, related to what you just said, I have to imagine that one of the many challenges of writing about religious belief and solidarity in this way is whether to treat, I guess, whether to treat your subjects as people for whom religious belief is itself a kind of ethnic identity or deep cultural identity that is inextricably bound up with who they are as individuals, or perhaps by contrast, the alternative inclination, which seems to be pretty prominent as well, would be to treat religious people as if their religious beliefs merely constituted a set of moral or political positions that they can choose from and that exist in some sense independently from them. So I, I guess that seems like a question or a dichotomy 
that would be something you would have to en- engage with and and wrestle with. Is that true for you? Have I have I got that right, or am I am I off about that seeming dichotomy? Yeah, no, that's interesting, and and maybe this is too simplistic, but it seems like what you're identifying is the difference or distinction between belief and practice, right? The way in which the habits of religion have an impact on people and then sort of setting that apart from the way in which people's beliefs or sort of like metaphysical commitments have an effect on them. Um, And I think it's a both and, right? Like I think the most important thing for me in my work is listening well. And that's one of these habits, again, like asking good questions that I think is a lifetime work and is so difficult. Um, But learning to listen well to people as they explain their own reasons for mm-hmm. participating or not participating in, in religion, for identifying or not identifying as religious. All of the sort of language that they use, it helps to give a key to how they're thinking about that question of belief versus practice versus culture versus, you know, sort of picking and choosing versus making your own religion. It, it's just, you know, all of these different factors are sort of floating together and wound, and bound up together. So it's about, I think, listening well and trying to understand how people are, are coming at these questions themselves. So I recently heard uh, Krista Tippett, um, host of On Being, say in an interview that she thought uh, the greatest danger, one of the greatest dangers for journalists who cover religion is that they would treat uh, religious people in the same way they treat politicians, that is, with a certain distrust. Uh, t- Tippett seemed to propose instead that they treat them like I think she used the term artists, so that is by acknowledging the subjectivity of religious belief, as well as the, you know, the complexity and beauty of religious experience. So what, I guess related to that, what in your view would make a journalist uniquely good at covering religion? So what traits or habits of mind have you had to develop, in addition to just to just being open and asking questions, what traits have you had to develop to ask the to ask good questions about religious people, particularly those outside the mainstream? Hmm. Well, I think that's hard, and I would use a disclaimer at the top, which is I don't think I have any kind of corner on the market, and I think it's something that you have to practice over time. I think being a good religion reporter is similar to being a good reporter generally, which is learning to ask good questions, learning to listen well, learning to be empathetic towards your subjects and to respect them. Um, This is a piece of wisdom that an older religion journalist shared with me once, which is that the most important thing that you can do as a religion reporter is to make sure that you respect the people who you're reporting on, um, that you treat them with dignity and that you are not sort of approaching them with either derision or um, as you seem to refer to in the tippet quote or tippet phrase, you know, assuming that it's sort of mistrust is the right posture. I will say that I disagree a little bit with the characterization that religion is a subjective craft that is uh, unique to the individual that we can only understand sort of by using their words of sort of beauty and, and sublimeness and whatever. Um, I think it's a both and and probably a both and plus um, in that, yeah, I think religion has beauty to it. And I think capturing the beauty that comes from people's religious practices and beliefs is really important. Um, I think also uh, religion is often mediated through institutions, often large and powerful institutions. And those large and powerful institutions are subject to corruption and flaw and internal 
discontent and, and discord and tension just the way any other institution is. And I think it's really important to cover that as well, to not be so enamored by the beauty of it all mm. that you forget that this is in fact a human craft, that we are just people. And that in um, the world of, of men, there are often uh, conflicts and, and negative things to be uh, uncovered. Um, and then I, I would also sort of maybe add a third column, which is only roughly here. And I'm you know, sort of speaking off the cuff, right? But um, I think understanding religion as ideology, right? So a worldview or a, a line of approach that helps us understand why people ask the way they do or they make choices or they have certain kinds of values is really important. And that's, again, different than understanding religion as beauty or re- understanding spirituality as this uh, sort of form of art. It's about understanding people's motivations and worldviews and I think there are all sorts of delicate ways that you can do that. And I think respecting and being empathetic are, are really important components of that. Um, but I also think that for journalists, you know, there's a certain amount of dispassion that has to be involved in understanding that as well. So if it's all right, Emma, I'd just like to ask a few questions about you. Uh, first, where did you uh, grow up? I grew up outside of Nashville, Tennessee. When you were a kid or when you were being raised, what was your experience, I guess, with religious faith? Did you grow up in a sort of religiously diverse community? And did the traditions you saw around you, did they seem to have much effect on the political views of people you knew or even your own family? Well, a lot of different cities claim to be the buckle of the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. But I would make a full-throated case that Nashville actually is the buckle of the Bible Belt. (laughs) Okay. You know, people sort of argue about where that buckle is located. But Nashville, you can do the unique exercise of standing at a very high place and looking out across the vista of the city and seeing how many church steeples you can count. Or alternatively, you can pick a street and see how many miles and how many, like the miles to churches ratio is usually pretty high, Um, which is all just to say, I mean, a lot of places in the South are like that. But it's all to say that Nashville and the area surrounding where I grew up uh, are very religious, um, very Christian, uh, tend to be fairly homogenous, or at least the place that I grew up was fairly homogenous religiously. Um, but it was a deep part of life. It uh, saturated life. It informed people's views of the world very much. And um, I think having that background and context was very important for me uh, sort of coming into this reporting job mm. and understanding that that was a really important basis for a lot of people. Um, it was sort of their, you know, basic language. And, and that's been super valuable. And I'm really grateful to have had that context and experience. So where did you go to college? I went to Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. So what, I guess my first question about that is, was it a significant transition to move uh, from your upbringing to a, a sort of Catholic university in Washington, D.C.? Mostly because uh, D.C. is so much colder than D.C. is in Tennessee, which is something that I have not gotten over yet. But, yeah, I mean, it it was a big transition and and a wonderful experience in a lot of ways. But I was attracted to Georgetown in part because of its Catholic identity. Um, I liked that the school was committed to academic excellence, but also to having this sort of religious or spiritual component as part of its curriculum and campus life. And so that was a, a great fit for me, and I, I loved my time at Georgetown. So what did you study there? I was in the government department, and I specialized in political theory. 
So uh, you were just mentioning, as you say, Georgetown is a Catholic university, um, but it is indeed in Washington, D.C., and I think its student body is probably generally liberal or on the left. Uh, So it seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong about this or or debate me on this point, but it seems to be the kind of university that takes its religious affiliation seriously, really seriously on cultural terms, but may not feel beholden to a certain like strict hierarchy. That is to say, it's not quite like a place like the Franciscan University of Steubenville, which seems to graduate a lot of priests or people who are, are pretty orthodox. So I guess my first question is, have I got that right? And then uh, what was it like to attend a Catholic university like that, if I did if I did get that characterization right? Well, I don't want to weigh in too much on that. I think it, depending on who you talk to, they would have various takes. I would say in a general way, uh, Georgetown has a very rich tradition. It's a mm-hmm. Jesuit university, and it has a very rich connection to that tradition, I found that to be evident in my time on campus, um, but it was partly because I deliberately sought it out. Um, and, you know, I think there are other people who perhaps are less interested in that as part of their Georgetown experience, and that's fine. Um, you know, Georgetown is trying to compete to be a top research institution, and that's where its priorities lie. But I also think that it's a leader on a lot of religious research and trying to engage with questions of pluralism and um, is certainly a home for some of that Catholic influence in Mm. a way that, you know, if you went to uh, Vanderbilt, for example, in Nashville, right, that wouldn't be present. And I think it would be pretty distinctively different. Um, So, yeah, that's what, that's what I would say. I think uh, for me, it was a very important aspect of my Georgetown experience and that might not be true for other students, but um, I think it has, the school has a lot to offer on that front. And did you start working for the Atlantic right out of Georgetown? I did, yeah. So what initially, when you joined the Atlantic, what initially got you on the religion and politics beat? Um, so did you just pitch stories in that? Were you were you interested in that coming right into work? Yeah, um, I had a few different gigs that I swirled through, but the very first piece that I ever published for the Atlantic.com was Uh, about this order of nuns who, during Vatican II, helped to form and influence the thinking behind a document called Nostratate, which was the Catholic Church's first statement on the Jewish people and its relationship with the Jewish people, um, which is a very important uh, promulgation from Vatican II. And so it was about, you know, these women basically who were behind the scenes kind of rocking it and you know, getting their influential ideas in there, they have a specific um, calling to connect with the Jewish people. Mm. That's sort of what their order is formed around. Um, so anyways, that was the first piece I ever published. And I think from there, it just sort of snowballed. And I have always found uh, stories that involve religion to be fascinating. And there's no end to the questions that I'm interested in. And that has developed over time into an area that I, I focus on, not exclusively, but um, in sort of large part. So uh, this, I know I've got to let you go soon here, Emma, but this is just my last question to wrap up. So I remember listening to an interview your colleague uh, at the Atlantic, ta Coates, gave about uh, becoming a writer and cultural critic. He, he talked very movingly and compellingly about, you know, the amount of time and energy it took him for various reasons to establish himself as a writer, uh, so you, and I mean this in the best way, you, you've seen to have done 
the establishing of your work pretty quickly and sufficiently. You've published a lot and about a variety of topics. I remember reading an article you published uh, about William F. Buckley recently, uh, about the book Heather mm-hmm. Hendershot published on him and, and his show Firing Line. So have you have you thought then about um, you know what's next for you on your writing agenda? Have you considered like writing a book about religion and politics, or will, do you have new questions you hope to be asking um, about that intersection about or about anything else that's coming up uh, this year? I have the goal of becoming a better reporter and writer, and I think that is a a life's work if you're lucky Mm. enough to be able to do it. And I only ever think of it in that term, which is if I'm lucky enough to be able to keep doing this, I just hope to continue with the slow boring of hard boards, which is, you know, getting better and better and better at doing this work, which is very, very, very hard. Um, and certainly I find it exciting to, to do it. And I find it exciting that there is a lot ahead of me that I still find to be challenging and, and invigorating. So I, I've got a lot of work. I got a lot of work to do, um, is what I would say to that. <laughs> sure. Well, Emma uh, Green, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Emma Green, staff writer and editor at The Atlantic. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and oh, what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.